play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, iconic fashion designer Betsy Johnson. Betsy has been designing clothes since the 1960s, and she's still super relevant, going strong with her brand at 77 years old. She also has a new book out called Betsy, a memoir. And talking to Betsy is like talking to the spunkiest, chattiest, foul-mouthed grandma. She's sweet and smiley under her signature blonde fringe, and she swears like a sailor. Betsy grew up dancing and cheerleading. She was really serious about dance and wanted to be a rockette. So for decades, she's ended every runway show with a cartwheel and the splits. My dancing school was really my main inspiration. The hair and the makeup and the costumes and the sparkles and being born a Leo and liking color and all that shit. So a little behind the scenes, guys. Uh, I was in the newsroom with producer Laura, and I was saying, I want for this episode uh, a guest that is the perfect collision of food and fashion. And she was joking and just said, oh, why don't you get Lady Gaga on to talk about her meat dress? And I was like, yeah, totally. I'll just get Lady Gaga on. But the joke turned into a sort of reality. Coming up, I chat with the dress's designer and creator, Frank Fernandez. And second to the Space Needle, Pike Place Market is probably the most iconic place in Seattle. And within that market is the Pike Place Fish Market, where the fishmongers and orange aprons famously throw fish. So co-owner Ryan Reese pops in to tell us how that tradition started. But first, my conversation with Betsy Johnson. I'm a mess. No, you're great. Fingernails. (laughs) I'm gonna lose my hair extensions soon, (sighs) and it's got to be changed every three months. This was Betsy's very first time ever using Skype, and she did the interview from her Malibu backyard, where she has been quarantining. A couple years ago, Betsy followed her daughter to California after 55 years of living in New York City. Moving is a. I mean, I'm a hoarder, and I have a great house you do I, can I how do I oh yeah I want to see your house this is my deck I don't Claudia. in the late 60s started. working as a fashion designer in New York City Betsy fell in with the Velvet Underground and Andy Warhol crowd in 1968 she married John Cale one of the founding members of Velvet don't I sound cool that I just called it Velvet? <laughs> they got married at the courthouse with a small entourage of artists and musician friends, including Warhol, Lou Reed, and Nico. That was funny. I wore a pantsuit, a beautiful burgundy crushed velvet pantsuit with antique lace coming out of the sleeves. And John had was wearing this black canvas suit I made him. And we went to City Hall and blah, blah. There were no lines back then. It was quick, but they had rules. Rules about women wearing pants. There was a serious thing, and they would get me all the time because I made a lot of pantsuits. Silver lame pantsuits, satin back crepe pantsuits, velvet pantsuits. You could not go in a restaurant like an uptown or an elegant, a nighttime restaurant 
in a pantsuit. Now nobody remembers it because they're dead or they're too young. But back to the courthouse, Betsy and John's names were called and the whole group appeared before the old judge. In her book, Betsy says, quote, he scanned our group with a disapproving glance, finally settling his gaze on me. And he said in his deep, judgmental voice, young lady, I will not marry a girl who is wearing pants. My own wedding in City Hall, I can certainly wear what I want. So when he said you can't get married like that, I went to the ladies room and I took the pants off. So I came out with a lot of crotch showing. I came out with the shortest, tiniest little top. And of course, that was okay. I mean, they married us, but it was very funny. After they were married, they celebrated by walking around the corner to have breakfast with their friends. A couple years later, they divorced. He's still one of my dearest, dearest friends out of all my men. John is my dearest, funniest to this day, most talented, most brilliant, dear friend ever. So that's nice. Betsy is a hyper-creative person, but she has absolutely no interest in applying her creativity to cooking. She's always enjoyed going out to eat. At night, I always go to a restaurant. I can't stand to shop or cook or eat home alone or even enjoy takeout food, which I'm having to get into right now, which I hate. It's not that she minds being alone. She loves going out by herself. She just doesn't like eating at home. She tells a story about running into Andy Warhol in a restaurant decades ago in New York City. I eat out alone at night. I really enjoy it. Unless I'm with friends. And on my birthday, I didn't have any plans. I think I had some kind of get together with friends over the weekend. But I took myself out to my favorite, the hip favorite restaurant by myself. I eat early. So I'm never weird about going into a restaurant because it's never crowded. And I know the people from, it was called L'Express, French guy owned it. And I was there sitting around and Andy was very, very quiet. And he came in with some of his friends and we just wave. I mean, for me, I was so like in awe of Andy and he spoke very little. And when he did, to me anyway, he was incredibly sweet. And he came over to say hi. And I said, yeah, Andy, it's my birthday. <laughs> and he said, happy birthday. And then before he left, he gave me this napkin that he drew me a picture of me on. And it was really cute, cute. My hair was up and it was kind of profile-y, three-quarter, and happy birthday, Betsy. And I had it hung in one of my stores, and sure enough, it got stolen. So that was that. <laughs> I have always wanted to be that person that just goes to a restaurant and sits calmly and has a glass of wine and just looks off into the ether. But I feel uncomfortable eating by myself unless I have a book or a magazine because I don't know where to look. How do you feel about mm. eating out by yourself in public? Yeah, I absolutely have to have somewhere to put my eyes. Yeah. It's usually if I'm by myself, it's usually me looking at my phone, which I try not to do in public as much as possible. But I like eating alone? No, I don't. I'm going to take that back. <laughs> yeah, I don't I, either. I don't like eating alone. I don't like being there shoveling food into my face. I like food and eating out to be sort of a, an experience, you know? And so I like to take my time and have conversation. So if it's just me and I'm just like utilitarian, 
eating a meal. It's I, over so fast. Yeah. I just gobble it down. Yeah. And I just don't want to go and sit down and do that. I'd rather just grab something and like eat it on the go. There was a time I went to New York and I had a night by myself and I made a reservation at a really nice restaurant because I wanted to go there. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I can't be on my phone here. This is a nice place. <laughs> and I didn't bring a book or a magazine because it just felt weird. And I just did not know where to look because the only thing to save you is to people watch, but people notice that you're looking at them. And I think the best case scenario for eating out alone would be to be sitting next to a couple on a bad first date because I love eavesdropping and that would be the best scenario. You'd be completely entertained. You could just eat and look at your food and have some oral entertainment. And that's A-U-R-A-L. Yes, sickos. Time for a quick break, but when we come back, Betsy, who is a true creature of habit, reveals her last meal. And... You want me to throw a fish? It's a lot quieter right now down at Seattle's famous Pike Place Fish Market, but they are still open during the quarantine. Co-owner Ryan Reese tells me how the fish throwing tradition got started and how one learns to catch a flying fish. Just a ferry ride away from Seattle is the Kitsap Peninsula, a land of gorgeous forests, sparkling water for kayaking and stand-up paddleboarding, and adorable seaside towns with locally-owned boutiques and family-owned restaurants. I have done so many day trips to the Kitsap Peninsula, wine tasting on Bainbridge Island, a girl's trip to Paul's Bow, ice cream and architecture in Port Gamble, watching the seals play from the beach in Port Orchard, and I still haven't seen it all. If you're like me and like off-the-beaten-path places where the locals vacation, you are going to love the Kitsap Peninsula. And this month, we're talking about Bremerton and Silverdale. So Bremerton is known as a naval town, and there are museums if you're into the big ships. But the restaurant scene has been really growing over the past several years. Grab a bowl of clam chowder or homemade lumpia at Bremerton's veteran-owned Axe and Arrow. And visit a land and gardens to see meticulously trimmed bonsai and a tree that has been around since 300 BC. Plan your visit. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal. You can also find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. What would your last meal be? Oh, this is so easy for me because... I mean, for almost one year, I lived on red vines, not red licorice, red vines and almonds. At work, Chantal, we we never sat down and had lunch. We never wined and dined an editor once. We just didn't eat during the day. But anyway, I tend to eat the same things. I know one year I lived on my tuna fish supreme. That's when I finally got skinny. And I just ate tuna fish out of the can every day and added celery and olives and scallions and I don't know 
every piece of junk you could imagine. So I tend to eat only one thing all the time. And then all of a sudden I'll wake up and I think, I can't eat that anymore. I'm very happy to be healthy because at the end of the day, I can't remember when I've had any green vegetable. But then I'll panic and go, oh, some broccoli to go, make some broccoli. But basically now my routine is all of a sudden, maybe a year ago, I really got to taste for the first time and love smoked salmon. So every morning for breakfast, religiously, I have smoked salmon. I cut it up, pour capers on it, and then I have one of those lime squeezers. That's the secret. You got to have a lime squeezer and you got to use limes, no lemon. And that's what I have every single morning is my smoked salmon caper lime juice. My dinner is always fish. And now the only delivery place, the only thing I like there is salmon. So at night, I'm eating cooked salmon with broccoli. So I'm going to turn into a salmon one of these days. Because <laughs> if I just start to eat, I'll gain weight. So I can't just eat. And I keep a very, very empty refrigerator. And I don't really like my yogurt and jello. I was into jello with whipped cream for quite a while, but I'm, I don't eat yogurt anymore. And that's it. I like to keep eating very simple, and I love to eat only what I love. And I'm not interested in a restaurant of trying their this and trying their that. And I don't know. I just don't care about food that much anymore. Yeah. And if I do care about it, I want it to be exactly what I love eating. Is that what you want for your last meal, though? This is like if you could have one thing, last thing, what would you pick? My last meal before I croak? Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to have smoked salmon with capers and lime juice. For her last meal, Betsy Johnson wants smoked salmon with capers and lots of lime juice. A meal that she's been eating every single day for a long, long time, whether she's at home or on vacation. She eats smoked salmon for breakfast and pan-seared salmon for dinner. And living here in Seattle, a place that is famous for salmon, it is hard not to think about the Pike Place Market. Crab, halibut, smoked salmon, Copper River, best salmon in the world, highest grade. Who'll be next? Come on in. The Pike Place Fish Market in downtown Seattle is famous for its fishmongers, who throw the fish from the display case in front of the crowd up to the guys behind the counter. Hundreds of people will gather around the open-air market where hundreds of fish are resting on ice. People have their cell phones ready. Everybody's waiting for this show so that they can take a little video. Now you're supposed to buy stuff. Ryan Reese co-owns the fish market. He and four other fishmongers bought the place in 2018 from their boss, John Yokoyama. He was ready to retire and pass the business down to some dedicated employees after owning the place for 53 years. Oh, I can't believe it. I I really, truly cannot believe it. Owning the market means being a part of a long, rich history. The market is really famous for being, I think, the oldest continuously operated farmer's market in the country. Uh, opened in 1907. We opened up as a fish market slash produce market in 1930. And somewhere along the line, maybe in the mid-60s, we started throwing fish over the counter to move fish a little quicker. So it started off for complete functional reasons, nothing to do with entertainment? Nothing to do with entertainment, no. In fact, it happened for decades without 
any fanfare. It was really just a way to move product from the displays to behind the counter so we could weigh the product and cut it. Back in, I think, the early, mid-80s, the Goodwill Games came to Seattle. The media kind of descended on Pike Place Market to get B-roll, and they set up their cameras right next to the fish market, and everybody saw the flying fish in the background, and that's when it really became kind of busy, became a thing. Busy is an understatement. In peak season, 20,000 people will pass through the market in a single day. What are the skills beyond the fishmonger skills to do all of the throwing and the catching? It takes several years to really get up to speed to be a good fishmonger. First of all, just learning about all the fish and how to cook it and how to cut it and clean it and all that sort of stuff. Once you get the basics down, then you start catching fish. You're going to drop a lot of fish at first, but I've never met somebody that we haven't been able to teach how to catch fish. But you definitely start off small with like the little tiny rainbow trout, and then you work your way up to the big 30, 40-pound halibut. Do you practice on off hours so that people aren't seeing them (laughs) flying around and slipping all over the place? No. People way more enjoy it when we drop them than when we catch it. When we catch them, you get a little woohoo, you know, but when we drop one, that's when you get the best reaction. So it's all on the job. We do work long days. We're here 12 hours a day. So there's plenty of opportunity for practicing because you spend half your life here when you work here. Talk about the personality of, you know, all of you who work there, because I feel like it's very non-Seattle in that everybody's super friendly, super warm. I think that there's a bunch of cute guys that work there. It's this like flirtatious kind of fun place to be uh, in the market. So what are the personalities that you look for when you're hiring someone? Because you don't want some like grumpy, curmudgeon old fish person in that atmosphere, I'm assuming. Grumpy, grumpy definitely doesn't work. However, we don't necessarily target certain personalities. It does take, I think, a special person to work here. I think what people like about coming down here is that we really include the people that are hanging out watching or buying fish. They feel like they're a part of it. It's really the people that bring out the best in all of us. We don't want anybody acting and putting on a show, really. Just be yourself like you would be around your friends and people seem to enjoy it. The Pike Place Fish Market is still open through the quarantine. They're doing curbside no-contact pickup, or they do next-day delivery anywhere in the country. It is time for a little break, but when we come back, Frank Fernandez tells us how he came up with the idea to make Lady Gaga's infamous meat dress and how they turned it into beef jerky. We'll be right back. Back in the day, you could have argued that food and fashion do not exist in the same orbit. All those stereotypes and cliches about skinny models and fashion folks who don't eat all day. Even in Betsy's book, she talks about a time when she would only eat a can of tuna in a single day. But today, in our food-obsessed culture, we have people like Chrissy Teigen, a supermodel turned cookbook author. And then there's Carrie Diamond, the co-founder of Cherry Bomb Magazine and Podcast, who cut her teeth working for Coach and Harper's Bazaar. Food and eating is cool, and even the fashionistas want to be a part of it. But when Frank Fernandez came up with the idea for Lady Gaga's famous meat dress, it had nothing to do with eating. This was back in 2010. Lady Gaga was presenting at the MTV VMAs, and she needed three looks for the night. 
The first was by McQueen, the second Armani, and the third look was dreamed up by Frank Fernandez, who was and still is a creative director, not a fashion designer. Frank had collaborated with Gaga a few times on custom outfits, so her stylist called and asked if he could make her a meat purse. And then I just kind of jokingly suggested like over emails with everyone and was like, we should do a full dress. And then she chimed in and was like, yeah, or something like that. So have you ever worked with meat before as a fabric? I hadn't. But what's funny is that because I'm, I'm Argentinian, so we eat a lot of meat. And I went to like my family butcher and I was like, hey, I'm making a dress out of meat. Which cut would be like the best to sew through? He didn't even ask what it was for. He was like, oh, then you want matambre, which I think is skirt steak, funny enough. And were yeah. you like, how do you know that? Like he was so quick on the draw. I, I don't know. He was just like, he, he. I was like, I need something that works like fabric that isn't as striated so it won't fall apart if I sew it. And he just knew, he's like, oh, you want something more rubbery. So then. Is the texture then like a little bit, would you say like chewy or just not as prone to falling apart? Yeah, it's a chewier meat. So it's usually, I think what they make like, it's not technically meatloaf, but it's a loaf in Argentina that we make where you lay out this sort of fabric of meat and you sort of season it and stuff it with things and then you roll it and you put it in the oven for like a long time so it becomes tender or else it is just kind of rough to eat. I bought a total of like maybe 70 pounds of meat and on her body I think there was like 60. Um, she was wearing 60 pounds of meat? Yeah. Wow. I know. It's crazy. I sewed the whole thing onto a bodice, which is why like the weight was distributed well. Um, also, that's accounting the shoes. And then, yeah, there weren't any any iterations. I finished half of it the day before the, the event. I went to her hotel room. I showed it to her and she just said, holy sh- I thought you were kidding. Keep going. <laughs> this is the day before. So if she didn't like it, you'd have to come up with something totally different made out of actual fabric. Right. Well, she already had the plan B dress the whole time. So there was always a chance that she wasn't going to wear it because she didn't even try it on the day before. She was like, I'm not going to slip into that tonight. So just do it and we'll do it on the day of. So I was like, okay. So there was there's like an alternate universe where I'm not at all relatively well known. You know what I mean? How did you have to handle it as far as keeping it refrigerated before she put it on? You know, did she put it on at the last minute and did you have to sew her into it at all? I, at the time, lived in like a tiny, tiny apartment that didn't have enough space to do anything. So my friend Sam was really nice and let me use his apartment and took out all the all of the shelving from the refrigerator out and just sort of stuck all the speed in there. And while we were sewing it onto a bodice, we kind of were taking things in and out of there. Um, luckily, it's one of the cuts of meat that's more greasy and less bloody, so it's not going to rot as fast. And then to transport it, I had this giant cooler with the ice packs in it and this like dress laid out in it. <laughs> and then you get to the venue and she's changing a few times. So she was just putting this on for a little bit anyway, right? Yeah, she did three looks at night. It's interesting because it was like a time when she was performing at any live event, but this one specifically, she wasn't performing. So we needed a way to sort of still captivate the press. And so she got her own green room at the venue and I slipped her into it. And yeah, we had to sew her in at the end. The dress got a lot of attention and stirred up plenty of controversy. Ellen DeGeneres, who was a vegan, was not a fan. I definitely got a lot of backlash from animal activists and vegans. And what's funny is that PETA wanted me to like publicly apologize or something. But but what's interesting is I think they got the most downloads of their packet on how to become a vegetarian around this time. Oh, really? Yeah. So because I think it like really freaked people out and probably obviously took people to 
articles or websites about meat. And so I think like I kind of did the world a favor by grossing so many people out. <laughs> yeah, you're helping PETA. Yeah. Yeah. Gaga was asked a lot of questions about the meaning behind the dress. And at the time, she said it was a reaction to the military's don't ask, don't tell policy, which was a big story that year. When I read that, I did not understand what that meant. (laughs) So I asked Frank what it meant. And he said, you know, Gaga can only speak for Gaga, but I can tell you what the dress means to me. For me personally, it was about like, you know, these old paintings of Vanitas, you see these paintings of like a rotting skull. It's like people's obsession with things rotting. And I think that has a lot to do with pop culture in general. So it's like she was like the number one artist. She was sweeping all the awards. Everyone was talking about her. Yet at the same time, I think a lot of people want to see people like that rot. Tabloids, all these things. So for me, it was like that. It was like putting her in the skin that people actually want to see her in. People want to see her rotty way, you know, because she was just the pinnacle of pop culture at the moment. It is so strange how we treat celebrities. We put them up on a pedestal and then we try to tear them down. And it's really, really an odd phenomenon as humans that we do this. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that's what it meant for me. I can't speak for her, though. What has become of this dress? Where is it and how have they preserved it? The dress now is taxidermied. So that means like all the biology is taken out. Uh, it definitely looks different. I mean, there's no way to make it look what it looked like before. So all of the blood is gone. It's not red anymore. It's like gray. And then through like essentially almost like Disney magic, they like fill on all the red again. So it's kind of like this like homage to this dress. So it will never be exactly what it was. Yeah, I read um, they kind of turned it into jerky. Yeah, that was I think the <laughs> I forget who said that. Maybe I said that or Nicola said, someone said that and then the press went wild with it. And what's funny is I got like jerky companies writing to me and were like, we would love to preserve the dress for you. Oh my God. Because <laughs> obviously they probably wanted to like sell Gaga jerky, but no, it's taxidermied. So you can't eat it. So it's like I got a bunch of formaldehyde and chemicals in it. The dress went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for a few years and now it's in Gaga's personal museum. House of Gaga at the Park MGM in Las Vegas. In Betsy's new memoir, she talks about the wild days when some of her friends and lovers partied hard, used drugs, and had problems with addiction. But Betsy was always the good girl. She'd have fun, she'd have a drink, but she always got to bed early enough to be fresh for work the next morning. She never missed a day of work because of partying. But Betsy does like a glass of wine, and she has her own secret language for what she calls a drink on the run. Can you explain to me what traveling music is or funny coffee? Oh, funny coffee is where you put your wine in a coffee cup, and traveling music is wine that you're drinking on the road, which reminds me, Claude. Now I do half and half. I have this amazing Bundenberg's ginger beer, and I throw in a little wine, because I, I, I'm better on a little wine than just plain boring, right, Cloud? <laughs> I'm happier. So yeah, I mean, everybody knew me and my traveling music. So I guess Betsy's traveling music is the same as the road sodas. That's what we used to call it in college back when I never did anything wrong and never had a road soda or a traveling music. Thank you so much for your time, Betsy. I really appreciate you. Is that it? That's it, folks. That was Betsy Johnson's last meal. 
and she said goodbye to me using her signature salutation. Keep your sunny side up. Keep your sunny side up is Betsy to a T. I love it so much. Isn't that the best goodbye ever? Keep your sunny side up. I love it so much. Make sure and pick up a copy of Betsy, a memoir. I love the book so much, I read it in three days. And do a little shopping at BetsyJohnson.com. Maybe you need a little retail therapy to get you through these lonely quarantine days and nights. Now I have very empty nights since my lover disappeared. (laughs) (laughs) Where is he? Gone with the wind. But I had a great four years with him. It was great. On to the next. On to the next, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to creative director Frank Fernandez and Ryan Reese over at Pike Place Fish Market. Go to pikeplacefish.com to order sustainable fish right to your doorstep. They'll ship it overnight. And if you're not following along on Instagram, please do at Your Last Meal Podcast. We've been doing something fun called the Quarantine Cooking Club. We just wrapped up week four. We're getting into week five right now, which I sound excited, but it's kind of weird because it's like, we've been in quarantine for five to six weeks. Uh, But that's kind of the whole point is to have something fun to look forward to, uh, to feel like you're part of a community. We're all cooking the same dish. We're making a last meal of a prior guest. So week one was spaghetti a la Isaac Mizrahi. Uh, This last week we did Mexican food which was the last meal of, I will safely say, the oddest guest we've had, (laughs) William Shatner, strange and wonderful man. So if you want to play along, make sure and follow your last meal podcast. Uh, I do the vote. I'll let you vote on the meal in my stories on Tuesdays, and then I reveal the winning dish on Thursday. So yay, quarantine. Let's make some hamburgers. That's what I hope the next dish is going to be. We'll see what you people vote for. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me and recorded with Aaron Mason. Our theme music is by Prom Queen. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Is this on a radio? Uh, It'll be for a podcast. I don't know even what they are. That's where people can... Hey, there's my poochie. Come on. (laughs)